You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I feel like who art Ed? Who art it? Mr. Wood art Ed me. Either way, it, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. That's off to a great start. Welcome to Who Arted Weekly Art History for All Ages. I'm your host, Kyle Wood, and joining me once again, I have my good friend, Chuck Hoff, fellow art teacher. Uh, thank you for coming in once again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about probably a lesser known name, but certainly well-known painting, Gustav Kaibat's Paris Street Rainy Day from 1877. Uh, this is one that I have seen a million times. I'm, I'm sure you have as well, because it is at our hometown um, museum, the Art Institute of Chicago. It's like right there as you're entering the Impressionist section. But Gustav Kaibat is probably not the best known name from that movement. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Even though the Art Institute uh, gives him a full wall. And uh, it does a nice job of when you turn the corner, uh, it is the main painting you see as you're walking into that room that seems to be the entry to Impressionism. Yeah. And I always found it fascinating because, um, you know, they've got so many different paintings by better known artists we associate with like Monet and Renoir and all of that. But Kaibat is really not well known Although he's starting to get a, another look today. And as I was digging into his biography, I'm kind of seeing why. He was kind of an outlier in some ways. Uh, although at the same time, in some ways, totally expected biography. Um, I'm going to get into that now. So he's born August 19th, 1848 in Paris, France. And like a lot of really successful artists... He was born fairly successful. I mean, he came from a wealthy and prominent family. His father was a successful textile manufacturer, and he made a lot of money there. But where he really started to turn it from like a nice family fortune to fortune to like a Gustav never has to think about money kind of family fortune was uh, Kaibat's father took that money, a lot of what he had made in textiles, and also invested in construction and development just at the time that Napoleon had ordered Baron Haussmann to begin this massive 
development project, you know, the urban planning and development that gave us Paris as we know it today. They're doing like the cobblestone streets, rebuilding uh, new neighborhoods, like the buildings of apartments that are like a block long, um, the sewer system, all of that stuff was happening right around the time that Gustav was born. I, I want to say it started in like 1853. So basically it was like the early to mid 1850s through 1870. There's this massive urban urban development project happening in Paris. And that's where he grew up. That was sort of like the background to his life. That's what he's seeing all around him. And that's what we see reflected, I think, in a lot of the work that was going to come from him. Something I found really interesting when we think about him in relation to the other Impressionists was not just that like he had a lot of money. He was also younger than most of the other artists in the Impressionist circle, and he grew up in Paris in that development. A lot of the others, um, they kind of were a little bit more on the outskirts. They were a little bit older. They had grown up in their formative years knowing a country and a landscape that looked very different and were a little bit more connected with nature. And we see that in his work. We see a lot of stuff that's centered on that urban development. It's very concrete. I mean, we see like people laboring the floor scrapers and we see the the bridge trusses and all of that stuff um whereas even something like monet's painting of the railway station it was just so focused on like the way that light scatters through the steam and everything like that it felt a little bit more airy and ephemeral whereas kaibat's work feels much sort of weightier it's more grounded it's more um it's solid you know what i'm saying absolutely i you know and i turned the corner and one of the things that struck me about this particular painting was that it was the day i was having right so it was overcast it, it felt realistic um it it didn't seem to uh, want to glorify the best of our 365 days, but rather give us one that's probably something we experience more often when we go down to the city. So when I turned the corner, I said, yep, like that, that just happened to, to all of us as a family. And, um, and it, like, like you said, a painting that is grounded. Well, I mean, to me, it's going to have some elements that um, make you feel like you can connect with it, you know, as a common laborer. And so, like, I'm looking at this and I'm just glancing around and I know we'll talk more about the painting. Yeah. I, I like that he that he can connect with his general audience. Yeah. And I think it is interesting that he's building that connection and and that it has this relatable quality to it. And yet. I think one of the the best things I think you said there that really foreshadows is that idea of turning a corner and being struck by it um, because it has that moment of, you know, it's just a moment in time. It's relatable. It's what you see and experience in the day to day. And yet his work is also so much about turning a corner and the development and bringing us into 
modern art and modern society in all of these things that were new and fresh and different in Paris um, in the mid to late 19th century. So just to get back to like that historical and biographical thing, he studied uh, law, earned a degree in law in 1868. He was also trained as an engineer, which I would say probably has something to do with his fascination with the building and the construction and all of that. Um, but he more or less ignored those fields and instead chose to, I'm sure on some level, disappoint his parents by focusing on his real passion, arts. In 1873, he began study at the École des Beaux-Arts, you know, the traditional fine art academy. From what I gather, he only spent, you know, a little bit of time there because like a year later, his his dad passed away. He inherited an absolutely massive family fortune and that set him up to kind of study what he wanted, how he wanted, learning from other artists. His first painting that he kind of was submitting to the Paris Salon. At that time, you know, the Paris Salon was basically how an artist began their career. It's it's their introduction. It was the floor scrapers. And if you've seen this painting, it is... It's an odd work for that time because it is men looking sweaty as they are scraping the floor to like finish the floors in this building that's being developed. And it's just like, I guess in some ways a genre painting, like a scene from everyday life, except for the fact that a genre painting would typically focus on like everyday life in that oh, isn't this a funny anecdote kind of thing for, like, wealthy people? It's like a, a pleasant afternoon kind of scene. And for the the middle class, the genre paintings were usually going to be more sort of idealized and nostalgic kind of things. And here he's just showing, like, nope, this is what people are doing. They are sweaty. They're... They're enjoying a bottle of wine because that's what's getting them through this mind-numbing, back-breaking labor of scraping the floors. Needless to say, the Paris Salon did not did not appreciate it. It was rejected. He was he was hurt by that, as I'm sure all people are when their work is not not accepted. Um, but it was an interesting way to try to make his introduction. And after that, he became friends with a lot of other artists that the Paris Salon did not really take too kindly to. That's where he gets in with Monet and Degas and all of those others. He did not participate in the first exhibition of the Impressionists. At that time, they were calling themselves like the Society of Independent Painters, Printmakers, Engravers, or something like that that was just really long-winded. It became the Impressionists after that first exhibition where um, critics were just ripping them apart, specifically Monet's Impression Sunrise. That's where the name Impressionist comes from. Uh, a critical review called it the exhibition of the Impressionists. But Kaibat sort of saw those people who were doing something new and different and tackling these more sort of contemporary themes in their work. And he said, yes, these are my people. 
I want to be painting with them. And he did. He, um, he continued making just what he wanted throughout his life. He never really sold his work. Um, he, he participated in a few of the impressionist shows, but not the ones where collectors started to find the market for impressionists, which I think is probably why he became less well-known. Um, when the dealers started to come around to, to the impressionists and they found a way to make it profitable, that's where Kaibot was just like, I, I don't want the headaches. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with the commercial aspects of it. He did participate in the commercial aspects in the sense of buying impressionist paintings, especially when like nobody else was. He was buying from his friends and built up this massive collection, but he didn't really care to sell his stuff, which nice if you can get away with it. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I think I, um, I think one of the ways, um, I can contribute, you know, to this, uh, podcast in, in what you, in what you've just described is trying to understand the person. And I, and I found myself, I grew up on the South side of Chicago for the first 14 years. And, and, um, my parents and grandparents just worked uh, so very hard. Like they took the buses in and out of Chicago, my grandma, my grandpa, and he worked at a hotel and, and, uh, he was a maintenance guy and, uh, he was 50, 60 hours and that didn't count the travel. And I, I just thought to myself, like, as I, you know, as, as I go into the city and I see laborers, you know, I tend to see the vendors. I, I tend to see, um, you know, the, the, the people who, I know we'll spend 12 to 15 hours down there trying to sell, you know, maybe a hundred dollars worth of food. And mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about me in my past, but I, I tend to see that first, or at least I, I do a character study. Like I enjoy going to Chicago to see all of the different aspects of, um, what's going on in the city and how people survive. And, um, so I was thinking about, um, this, and I was thinking about the way I, you had brought up in earlier episodes about Wassily Kandinsky and, and how it parallels a little bit with their career choices and when they split from wanting to be uh, something, um, I think in his case, it was like also maybe a lawyer. Law and economics, yeah. Yeah. And so here he is. He saw that. He saw the fame. And... And he understands that, you know, his path could be pretty easy, but I don't think it would, I don't think he'd be able to study his characters, you know, the, the people in his story, I, if he gets too far from um, where it all starts. And so I, I find, I've listened to a lot of uh, different uh, podcasts and interviews, and one that comes to mind is Harrison Ford, um, you know, who's in those Star, Star Wars movies. In Indiana Jones movies, and he's so irritated because people recognize him. And mm -hmm. when that happens, it breaks uh, the chain of collecting more information to make his characters more relevant when he does his movies. So, you know, I, I think it it, it kind of, for me, that's how I connected, you know, today's artist, because I thought, you know, he he wants to be with the people. It, you know, or at least it, it seems that way. And I was just fully fascinated with that because he was handed the keys to the wealth 
and his life could have been, you know, pretty much scripted for him. But then in, in return, he may not have the paintings that he was able to produce. And then of course, all the support he gave to fellow artists, you know, so. Yeah. I mean, to be clear, he accepted that fortune. <laughs> he, he used that fortune. Um, and he lived a comfortable life. He, you know, had a lovely home and a, an impressive collection and the studio and all of that sort of stuff. And he was a boating enthusiast. He was like, you know, uh, he, he loved a good yacht actually in the boating. I think you and I actually talked about Renoir's luncheon of the boating party. Gustav Kaibat is actually pictured in the luncheon on the boat of the boating party. Um, yes. I'll link that in the show notes. He's like in the bottom right corner, I believe, but he enjoyed like he spent his time on hobbies that we very much would associate with the upper class. Um, you know, he's stamp collecting and all of that sort of stuff. But in his work, and I think this is the sort of engineering part coming in, like he had that engineering training as well. We see a lot of urban development we see like the bridges with the trusses and he's getting into details of these structures um and the architectural details that we see in those buildings and i think in a lot of ways even going back to the laborers he's just fascinated by how all of this comes to be that this massive project is undertaken and what i like is that he is recognizing it's not just the steel that makes the building. It's the people who put in those hours and who do that manual labor, scraping the floors and whatever, like that all of this stuff is coming together because of all of these people making their contributions. You know what I'm saying? And I, I think in some ways his work is about these intersections of people in society and the new buildings being developed, the architecture, the technology, um, and how that's changing day-to-day -day life for people throughout the city. Yeah. I love in, in um, your writing and research, you had mentioned that the street we're looking down was, you know, 20, 30 years before a, a hillside, like a little hill in, in the background. And I can appreciate the fact that, you know, as someone um, who's into the engineering, um, you can see the cobblestone bricks laid a certain way. Mm -hmm. And the focus of the of the painting is, you know, we're looking at a, a building split right there, you know, right in front of us, where you could take your eye down one street and down the other street. So it forms you know, a two point perspective within a, you know, pretty flat middle ground. So you have a middle ground, but then you have, um, you know, some complexity. He wants you to take, you know, he wants to take the viewer down both sides of the street and lay the cobblestones um, in, in the direction they, they are. So he didn't, I just feel to me like he didn't cheat any part of this and, and he could have, because it's pretty labor intensive and, and I really appreciate um, the complexity of this, this painting 
as I took myself around a couple of the rooms at the Art Institute, and the ones that stood out were the ones that I think had some heavy math in it. Yeah. Because I can just appreciate a couple elements as we are teaching our students um, who have heavy math backgrounds. It's a it's a great way to tie in um, some extra, um, you know, uh, subjects to where they're they're even more intrigued and, and fascinated. Yeah. And so as long as we're starting to shift towards this, let's leave it right there for a moment. Let's take a quick break. And then after that, we're going to get into probably Kaibat's most famous painting, Paris Street Rainy Day from 1877. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. Okay, so now as we're looking at Kaibat's Paris Street Rainy Day, uh, huge painting from 1877. I mean, this is about life size. These figures, when you stand there, you feel like you can just walk into the space. And as we've already talked about, there's a lot going on here. But as you look at this, what's jumping out at you? Uh, so first thing I, I I did when I was tr- I was talking to uh, my family, and uh, we ranged from two twelve year olds to fourteen and sixteen year old at the moment. You know my my eighteen year olds off to college, and we just wanted to. I, I said to him, I said the first thing that struck me is the wagon wheel. Uh, and the wagon wheel, um, I, I thought it was interesting because here he is a um, an engineer, uh, and and you know. Um, he could have he could have went ahead and just painted every aspect of the wagon wheel, and this will be in the painting. It'll just be to the left. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, 
And so when I, so I got to be within inches, you know, I think the, I think it's a foot before you set the alarms off and I'm staring at it. And I told my kids to stare at it. And I said, he didn't paint everything. You know, he, he paint the width of the base of each spoke and let it kind of disappear in some spots. And I said, this gives you that atmospheric space, mm-hmm. you know, where your eye just cannot uh, realistically grab the entire wheel. And because of it, it works at just about any distance, but particularly from where he probably thought people would be looking at this painting 10 to 15 feet out. Uh, and as you as you move within a foot, then you start seeing why it's working and how much information he's leaving out. And uh, that to me was brilliant. Uh, that, and I, I wanted to start there. Yeah, it gets a little bit hazy. As you say, there's this little bit of that atmospheric perspective where the people in the foreground are pretty well defined. Like we can see the buttons on the vest. We can see, you know, the hairs on on the head. We can see the lace on the woman's face. And I'm, of course, talking about the figures in the right hand side. But then as we look across and back through the painting, things become less defined because, as we all know, things closer to us don't just look bigger. We see them in sharper detail and things kind of fade into this gray, especially on a rainy day. He's capturing the effects of light and on the wagon wheel. It's I, I think of the way that when you watch a car in motion, the wheels like it's just it's overwhelming to the eye to process. You can't see the spokes so well. And I think he's actually kind of capturing that sense of motion a little bit there by just having these little yes. flicks. I, I, I agree there. And it's much like with stop motion, when you, when you try to convince, you know, students that, you know, eight to 10 pictures allows that little bit of a trick of an eye, they understand it's still stop motion. But um, you're more accepting of things disappearing and being crunched, and and you you accept the line of motion, and you accept that there would be just a little bit of blurriness as as the object's moving across. That's where he's at. Yeah. You know, this is not obviously a Tesla. This <laughs> is a carriage carriage wheel. So the carriage wheel, you're still going to understand that there's uh, spokes, whether it's parked or moving but it's going to be moving at a pretty slow rate of speed. So you can probably distinguish them. I also think it's funny. Like when you look at that carriage that it throws me off, it feels so cut off. Like I, I have to imagine there's like some sort of bar that I just can't see that's connecting to the horse out in front of it. But it just, it feels like, and maybe this is because the figure is walking in front of that, you know, it feels like that carriage is not supported. There's nothing to propel it forward. It feels like I just see the back two wheels, like a rickshaw or something like that, you know? Um, And also that sense of things being cut off and blocked from our view. That's something that's really striking to me about this. It feels like a snapshot, not just because people are in motion, but also because like when you look at the man on the right hand side, and when I say right hand side for us as the viewers, my right, who's basically just walking into 
frame. I mean, he is cut off. We only see half his umbrella, half of his head, like half the body, one arm. Um, That's strange for that time. It's typical in a photograph because the camera is always seeing just some stuff in the field of vision. But in traditional paintings, they would always compose it so carefully so that we can see everything that we need to see and every person that we need to see. And that idea of having someone cropped at the edge and running out of the picture plane, that was something that felt sort of fresh and modern and a composition influenced by photography. Because photography was uh, an invention of the the mid-19th century. And really, even at this time, while they did have a camera, you couldn't take a snapshot of the street at that time. It wouldn't have color, and you wouldn't be able to capture it fast enough to capture the motion. It would have been blurred. You know what I'm saying? It would probably be about 10 years later that the technology would be there for them to be able to really take a snapshot of this kind of scene. You had to have a painting worked on for months and months and months to get something that feels like a moment in time. Well, it's 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 funny because whether it was an accident or not, it, you know, if he had set up his easel and, yeah. you know, realistically, the camera set that up. The only two people that are, you know, probably the most attentive to something obstructing their view or uh, I'm sorry, obstru- um, obstructing their path are the two people to the left of the person that was cut off with the umbrella to the right. And so they, they're like literally almost stopped and looking, you know, off to their, off their shoulder. Everyone else is doing about what I would expect them to do. Um, as you know, it is, you know, it's drizzling, you're looking straight down, Yeah. you know, you want to make sure you don't, um, you know, you don't get wet or you take your eyes off and hit the curb. So, you know, I, I'm looking around that painting and I'm, I'm, I'm saying, okay, there is, you know, he definitely captured uh, two people stood there and are doing something a little bit different than everyone else. So I, I, you know, I could appreciate that, but he was careful not to do that with too many people because it has to feel like the city. It has to feel busy. It has to feel like people are, are, are trying to get to their destination. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not like stage like the Dutch had done earlier with like famous figures and Kings and Queens. It's there's nothing staged. And that's, um, that seems to be a break from um, earlier periods where you, you just felt like it was staged. And like you said, the entire body is in mm-hmm. or the, the the main part of the subject. So uh, that's another part I can really appreciate. Yeah. And it's interesting. You bring up those figures on the right hand side, how, they seem to be looking off to the side, oblivious to the fact that the guy coming in who's cropped at the, that edge is clearly going to run into them. I mean, their umbrellas look like they're touching. It looks like he's about to elbow that woman in the face as he walks by. Um, and and it's just uh, it's an interesting thing because it looks it builds some tension for me. It feels like someone needs to move because they're going to run into each other. But in a lot of ways, this is all about that sort of intersectionality. I mean, it's literally an intersection. We see this is a composition of all of these people going different directions and roads going different directions. And we see different types of people. Um, 
mostly we're focused on these middle class and upper class people who seem nicely dressed. But when, when you look a little bit deeper into the painting, like um, that couple that's in the foreground that grabs your attention right off the bat, when you look between them, there's like, there's a dude holding a ladder, like maybe a painter or other laborer who seems to be walking to do his job probably like there's this mix of different types of the upper class and the working class and that was also something that was kind of different that these people in different stations in life are all using the same streets they're all walking together through the city and commingling um that was sort of one of the hallmarks of this period and urban life in paris at that time Yes. And, you know, as you, as you scan through a little bit, um, I, I found some of the buildings, you know, it was, I, I want to look beyond the umbrella mm-hmm. and he took one half of this painting and he made that the foreground, like you, like you, um, said, and that tension is there. And if you look just beyond the tension, you see the, the only boy that I can see that he put in there, it's right on the street mm-hmm. corner off the off the long pole of the umbrella and so then i'm trying to figure out is it a is it a weekend you know um or are we you know did she just come down because she needs to run business you know like so it's to me i'm i'm fascinated by everything in the picture and um i i find i i find it to be pretty consistent the one thing i found that was kind of interesting is the cast shadows I can tell he really worked to figure out what the cast shadow needed to be for it to be an overcast mm. day. Because I think it would have been really easy to put like a, a pretty dramatic cast shadow to make sure everybody's standing on the ground. And at first I thought maybe this was underpainted. Like I I was trying to figure this out, like particularly the the person, there's a set of there's a couple between uh just just to the side of the wagon so you have the wagon wheel and you have the couple and they're yeah. floating they barely have a cast shadow but then when i started to think about it i said there is there is hardly a highlight in this painting as well so it it stayed it stayed right in that um middle kind of muted area and he stayed pretty consistent so i i really appreciated that you know particularly the the lamppost at the corner where it was pretty defined detail and then it blurred towards the foot of the painting. And I, I knew that to be true because that's where my eyes would pick up standing water. Yeah. There's a lot of subtlety to these variations because yeah, on a hazy day, a rainy day, everything gets into this sort of mid tone range, but he's got just enough contrast, just a, enough little pops where, um, it still works as a composition. You know what I'm saying? Like that's a difficult thing when so much of this is in this mid tone, he still gets the deep enough black on the top hat and the shadow under the umbrella on the, you know, the two men walking on the left-hand side. Like there are just enough like of the dark darks and just enough little highlights 
to define things, to give it a sense of volume and give us a clearer focal point um, that it, it does work compositionally. The other thing that I'm, I'm noticing just compositionally is the asymmetrical balance in it's it's weird because there's some points of symmetry like that building that's like the model of two point perspective that building feels symmetrically balanced and the light post is like centered giving us almost like an axis of symmetry um and on on some level it feels like it's asymmetrical but on some ways it does also feel balanced it's it's working you know it it, it it is working and i know it's the movement of the characters and and they're leading us to the other half of the um yeah picture i think i think if their eyes and their faces were looking straight at us i mean it it may have run uh, a different course because um i know i know you teach this well because our my kids that come to me uh, know this well and that is, you know, the rule mm. of thirds. And as you're looking at the rule of thirds, um, this would be like textbook, cut the painting in half uh, in both both directions. There are, yeah. You know, there doesn't seem to be a third in this. So why does it work? And 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 that would be a great um, that that'd be a great conversation to have with students because um, it's hard to get away with this. And not have it be less um, interesting than someone who followed the rule of thirds. And for me, it's because of the characters and um, it's because of the consistency. Yeah. You know, because all the characters and all the mute, you know, it's it's muted and, it, and it's because of the complexity. Like I, I particularly like all of the angles of the lines and buildings and space. He just does a wonderful job. But when i fir- if you first look at it you're like is it just me or did he just make two separate paintings you know the other thing that i'm noticing and i'm just now realizing this as you talked about the figures and how they tie it together the figures i'm i'm noticing where we can see their faces they're all following that compositional guide of having your subject looking into the frame the figures on the right hand side are looking to my left. So they're looking they're looking at the something, you know, presumably across the street, but they're as I as I look across to see what would they be looking at, I kind of then start to see like, okay, empty street, but then I see these two figures on the left hand side who are looking in towards the center as they're crossing the street. Just like the guy who is essentially central to the composition is looking in towards the center of the frame. Like he's looking at the curb, which would be blocked by the view of that central light post. But everybody seems to be looking into the frame, which helps to redirect my eye in different directions, but always deeper into the picture. It, it's funny because, you know, come 10 years later, you wonder if this painting, you know, was exhibited enough to influence like the Sunday afternoon painting that is also featured at the Art Institute. Oh, Sunday on the Grand Jat, the Surat. Yes, yeah. which, yes, which every, which all the characters are facing one direction 
uh, minus a, a character or two facing the viewer directly. And so I, I know, you know, this just becomes a study anyway. And this is probably a formal art class or many of them that, you know, you're taught to keep people inside your yeah. painting. I particularly want that to be the emphasis. But I, I, I just love that that in the 1870s he painted this mm -hmm. it because i can't i can't help but think like it it probably influenced for for 20 30 years paintings like this probably influenced each other to get to where we're at today yeah um that, that's interesting when now just to to tie some stuff together since you referenced uh the sunday on la grande jatte that was um my understanding of it is that Surratt had basically like two paintings that almost feel like companion pieces. You have like the Island of La Grande Jatte and then you have like the bathers that it looks like they're on the other shore. And it's like, you know, the, the upper sort of middle class and people who are sort of, um, layabouts and trolling and stuff like that and then there's the the lower working classes where they're on the other bank and you can see the factories and the smoke behind them and they seem to be looking out at each other if you looked at them and then there's that little girl who's like looking out at us the the viewer yes. who's just like what is going to become of these people um <laughs> you know but it, you talked about the you also referenced like if this was exhibited enough for it to have influenced Surratt I'm not sure about that because he put this if I recall correctly in the second exhibition of the Impressionists and um, I found it interesting a critic said something to the effect of Kaibat is an Impressionist in name only because he's the only one in his circle of friends who knows how to draw and um, and clearly they're forgetting about uh, Bert Morisot, who was very accomplished and, you know, had the stamp of approval from the Paris Salon and everyone else. But after that, like he exhibited in a couple of the Impressionist shows. But as I said, he didn't really sell his works. He didn't sell much of any of his works because he just didn't need the money. Why bother? Like he just had these paintings to show when he wanted and then just kept them in his home because probably he liked them. You invest a certain amount of time and effort in these. It's hard to give it away. And then his influence, I think, was probably diminished to some extent because of that. Because he wasn't selling work, it wasn't going out into a whole bunch of galleries and collections where other people could see it. Although he was critical to the success of others because he he bought a bunch of paintings. And then when he passed away, he passed away fairly young. Yeah, 45 years. Yeah. He um, When he passed away, he basically left his collection of... Monet and Degas and you know other paintings by the Impressionists to um, the the nation of France and and so the Musée d'Orsay got a ton ton dozens and dozens of Impressionist works in their collection from Caibat but his paintings I believe he left to his brother probably because it would feel a little bit egotistical to be like museum here are my works. 
you know, but the fact that he, the fact that he didn't exhibit as much, didn't sell so much, it didn't make its way through different people's collections kind of diminished his star a little bit. And then as he gave so much great art by so many different great artists to the museums, a lot of articles came out saying like Kai Bot was this great collector and look at his collection that has shaped art history and how he has supported these other people. So it became like he was a footnote in the life of Renoir and Monet and, and those others. But really, he was much more than that. But I guess we're probably at that time where we got to start to wrap this up. So where do you think this one belongs? Is this one for the Louvre? Is this one for the lab? Or is this one for the Louvre? It's, it's the Louvre for me. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think to me, because it stands alone, it comes early in a movement. Um, it comes, you know, it, it's not, it wasn't something that everyone recognized. Um, I also it, initially, and I also, uh, love the, the, the fact that there's, uh, so much complexity, um, that when you walk into a room and it's massive, it's massive. You walk into a room and it's a showstopper. I, I think the art, the art Institute feels this way. And, um, and the reaction I had around me that made me feel that way too like I wasn't I wasn't alone in feeling this yeah I I have to agree I think it is a stunning piece I love the composition because it really draws you into that world you know it's a great piece for the entry to a wing of a museum because of the fact that you feel like you can just walk right into that space and you want to it's bringing you into that world. It's also significant because it feels like a transition between sort of traditional painting styles and more modern impressionist methods. It doesn't have the quite the loose brushiness of most impressionists like a Monet, but it does have a lot of the same characteristics and the same goals with capturing the world as it was, as we saw it on a rainy day, the highlights and, and shadows, the reflections on the water and all of that sort of stuff. And I also think it has aged beautifully. In its day, it was about modern life and this transition to the new city and the new way of living in the world. I mean, everything about it was new. E- even the umbrellas, like the 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 uh you know, collapsible umbrella or whatever. That was new technology at the time. There's so many things that like to us feels quaint and old and traditional. Um, But at the time it was new and exciting. And the fact that all of that stuff has held up so well that it gives contemporary audience, you know, going on a hundred, almost 150 years later, it gives us a feel of like, warm nostalgia and we can kind of see oh that's 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 how i imagine paris and at the same time it was bold and innovative and new like it managed that transition very well like it doesn't feel dated in an odd way well and and you know 
if you, if you count the chimneys, you probably have 30 or 40. So if it's not a rainy day, it might be, it might be quite, you know, smoky and industrial. Yeah. So there is, there is something to this that, you know, you said 150 years. Well, I'm looking for the part of the city that looks like that today. And because I, 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 you know, you dress warm, you dress well, you can't wait to go downtown. You want to, you want to catch the sights and, um, it, it makes it a little romantic to be honest with yeah. you. Uh, there's a reason to put the, you know, you know, husband, wife, or, you know, a girlfriend, boyfriend together right there front and center. This is a trip into the city. It's a special trip. And, um, you know, and they're enjoying their time, even though it's raining. This is this is the window. We can't wait to get down here. Let's see all the new changes. And so, yeah, I can appreciate that. Yeah, it it works in different ways. And, you know, no matter what the time period, it feels like every audience is seeing something good in it. And I think that's what makes it such a fantastic museum piece to cherish for the ages in addition to his you know significance to the movement and his contributions through his painting and his collection because both do matter um but thank you so much for your contribution today i really appreciate your taking the time as always oh yeah my pleasure This concludes this week's episode of Who Arted, part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you found this tolerable, please leave a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. You can find images of the work being discussed this week and every week on social media at Who Arted Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And of course, on the website, whoartedpodcast.com. Podcast done.